0: and to claim CME-CE credit. Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today is Dr. Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor in the fa- in Family Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and Executive Editor at Dynamed. Today we're joining with you to discuss common questions we've been hearing from patients and our colleagues about the coronavirus. Good morning, Alan.
1: Good morning, Frank.
0: So... There's been a fair amount of discussion, even in today's news, uh, about wearing masks in public. Patients are asking, should we be doing this? Um, are homemade masks adequate? Do they need medical masks? Do they try to find an N95? And, and what are the worrisome side effects of wearing masks? Is it possible that they increase your carbon monoxide level? What have
1: you learned? To date, no study has been done examining the effectiveness of masks at preventing COVID-19. There have been many studies looking at masks in other settings. A recent study looked at patients with seasonal coronaviruses and demonstrated surgical masks slightly reduced detection of viral RNA and aerosols. A recent meta-analysis looked at surgical masks versus N95 masks and concluded that they were similarly effective in reducing transmission of influenza-like illnesses. The thing to keep in mind is that with all masks, they are—they have their limitations. People think that the N95 masks are the most effective, and at some level they may be, but in order for an N95 mask to really work uh, as intended, it has to be fitted properly, and the vast majority of people using them will not have them properly fitted. Getting them fitted is actually a somewhat time-consuming process where you have to Check to make sure that there aren't leaks coming in around the nose um, or other parts of the uh, face. And uh, it's not something that you can just do at home and just press the little aluminum uh, metal piece uh, to make it feel like it's all okay. With respect to the risk of transmission of surgical masks, surgical masks are good at preventing you if you are talking or speaking loudly from spraying saliva, or if you cough or sneeze, they will prevent the droplets from going very far. That's their main role. So for the most part, masks are protecting other people from you. They're not that great at protecting you from other people. It's part of what we can all do to protect each other, but they have their limitations.
0: I think it's very, car- to yes. ma- I th- it's very important. I'm sorry. It's very important we make that 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 point for our patients. That this is a, a community obligation, like wearing a seatbelt and 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 picking up litter. You're you're providing a public health measure to decrease possible spread of this infection.
1: Right. That's exactly the correct perspective. Regarding the carbon monoxide issue, I think the uh, I've seen some uh, uh, small reports on this. But there's no good evidence that this results in any clinically meaningful uh, adverse uh, effect. And so uh, this, you know, one of the problems we have is that we have trouble evaluating the magnitude of risk. There will be some study that finds some slight uh, effect, and all, all effects are treated equally in the minds of the public regardless of how likely or unlikely it is to actually make a difference in real life.
0: I have had a patient request a note stating she does not have to wear a mask because it makes her nervous. And I think this goes back to treating the anxiety issues around coronavirus. We, we, we need to help understand and address their concerns, but I, I don't think I can give her a note saying, no, she shouldn't wear a mask in public. If, she does not, if wearing a mask makes her uncomfortable, then probably the best thing she should do is avoid um, being exposed to others and exposing herself to others.
1: Sure, now there are some people who might not be able to wear a mask for genuine medical reasons. And these are going to be people with typically, uh, you know, severe lung disease, where something that's impeding their ability to breathe uh, may genuinely be a problem. But if it's just a question of anxiety, then uh, I think, the issue would be either to treat the anxiety or, as you say, for the duration, this is someone who might be best uh, avoiding being in uh, public spaces
0: yeah. all right let's let's move on talking about anxiety, the recent reports about the hyperinflammatory syndrome seen in children. Um, can you just bring us up to speed on what's going on with that, and is this is this again something that is is of a great worry, or is this a fairly rare event?
1: So, I'll start by just saying it is a fairly rare event, but again, it can be dramatic. And uh, in general, COVID 19 is something that is not much of a problem for children. And because this is a major problem for some children, it, of course, makes a lot of news. Uh, the Center for Disease Control has released a case definition for what they call multisystem inflammatory syndrome. And uh, this is a Kawasaki like uh, syndrome. The criteria are a child or adolescent uh, aged less than 21 who presents with fever more than 100.4 for at least 24 hours, laboratory evidence of inflammation, and that can be elevation of CRP, SED rate, procalcitonin, uh, elevated D dimer or ferritin, which are, you know, ferritin is a acute phase reactant, uh, elevated uh, IL 6, fibrinogen, elevated neutrophils, or a decreased number of lymphocytes or albumin. Any of those features uh, would help meet the case definition. Also, elevated LDH. Um, the condition should be clinically severe, requiring hospitalization, and there should be at least two organs involved, which can be cardiac, renal, respiratory, hematologic, GI, uh, skin manifestations, or neuro. There can be no alternative plausible diagnosis, and the uh, person should be either positive uh, for current or recent SARS-CoV-2 infection by PCR uh, or by an antigen test, or uh, there should at least be COVID-19 exposure during the four weeks prior to symptom onset. So very specific criteria. Um, There's currently limited information about risk factors or pathogenesis, even clinical course, and we are still at the stage where the CDC is requesting Uh, case reports to be reported so that this can be better understood. But the overall number of cases still reported to the CDC remains quite low.
0: Yeah, it made the news and it got everyone's attention, but it still um, is a very rare event. Um, When I was in medical school and even through residency, um, cytokines were not discussed. Uh, Can you talk a bit about what cytokine storm is and is there anything we should be doing to prevent it um, in our newly diagnosed COVID-19 patients?
1: Well, you know, again, uh, like so many other things in uh, medical school, a lot of the uh, pathogenesis in these biochemical uh, pathways and mechanisms, they don't seem very important until they are. And, you know, we learn about them in detail when it actually uh, matters clinically Um, and at other times we just move on from that. So, a coronavirus infection results in activation of monocytes, macrophages, and dendritic cells. These then release uh, uh, interleukin-6 and that instigates an amplification cascade. What follows is then systemic cytokine production, that contributes to the pathophysiology of the severe COVID-19 infections, including hypotension and acute respiratory distress syndrome. There are drugs which are uh, IL-6 antagonists, such as tocilizumab, sarilumab, and siltuximab, and these are being looked at for possible uh, treatment options. But uh, again, all of this stuff is in very preliminary stage in the stages, and there's not been any high-quality data demonstrating these drugs effective for uh, treatment or prevention yet. So uh, you know, as far as cytokines go, they certainly have been implicated in problems associated with previous uh, coronavirus problems, such as the, SARS, the original SARS-CoV and the MERS-CoV uh, uh, epidemics. But for right now, all we know is that this is a problem with the cytokines, but we're not really sure what's the best way uh, to to deal with that?
0: I had some high hopes for people getting corticosteroids orally uh, in the course of infection might prevent uh, the, the cytokine storm, but recent data shows that that, too, was ineffective and actually had worse outcomes.
1: Yeah, that's been a very important point, Frank. And I know that uh, often in patients with acute respiratory symptoms, clinicians will... Give uh, a short course of corticosteroids to, you know, especially if the person has a history of asthma or they hear some wheezing on exam. Um, and I think most people have a lot of caution right now about doing that for fear that the underlying uh, infection might be uh, COVID 19, and by giving corticosteroids, you could actually make things worse. So uh, just as we have learned to refrain from giving antibiotics for acute bronchitis. Uh, I think we may be needing to be cautious about using steroids for bronchitis as well uh, if we aren't very certain as to what the cause might be.
0: Um, let's think more about our population. Uh, the answer here is when all of us have prevention in place against this infection. And and the way that's typically occurs is, is through a vaccine. We had some early data from a phase one trial this week discussing uh, a potential vaccine that within 48 hours, was somewhat scrutinized and found to be, at best, unclear. Can you give me your thoughts about uh, reaching something uh, like an available vaccine for the population and or uh, at what point we might be able to count on herd immunity to protect the population?
1: Sure. So, first of all, in the idea of uh, a vaccine or herd immunity protecting the population ultimately the, it's the people who will never be able to develop immunity or have very weak immune systems that are the ones who need protection through this. And so we we will never have 100% of the population protected from the illness. Um, that being said, there are a lot of groups trying to develop a vaccine. I think this is one of the most aggressively pursued uh, issues right now. Uh, I read an article that said there were 75 different teams who had announced they were working on a vaccine in one form or another. The recent uh, data was phase one uh, and phase one data generally involves healthy people and seeing what their response is and you're just seeing if there's any kind of adverse effects it is really not designed for uh, detailed efficacy studies and so that's really going to happen in phase two and then, you know, phase three is what you're going to do once they've determined the uh, the proper dosing and the proper sequence. For vaccines, we don't know if one dose is enough, whether there are going to be booster doses required. And to really get that kind of data and to understand what it takes to establish long-term uh, immunity is going to take time. There's just no way to rush the, that type of research. So I think the most optimistic scenarios are We might have something by the end of this year, and I think more realistically is hope for a vaccine by mid-2021. It's worth noting that even those types of expectations are very optimistic. The fastest vaccine approval rate ever was for months, and that took four years. So the idea that we're going to have something in 12 months or 18 months um, is... You know, I remain optimistic and hopeful, but it's not something that I think we should necessarily be counting on yeah. when it comes to herd immunity. The idea here is that if there are enough people who've already uh, developed immunity by having had the illness, then when someone is sick, they won't be spreading it throughout the community uh, because they will have fewer people who are susceptible that they come in contact with. It's estimated that the minimum percentage of the population uh, to achieve herd immunity is 60% for COVID-19 and maybe as high as 80%. So we have a long ways to go. I think data I've looked at says maybe 10% of the population has already been infected. um, And that's obviously a far cry from where we'll ultimately need to be.
0: I want to talk a bit about pregnancy. Most of our listeners do not do obstetrics any longer, um, but many of them take care of uh, pregnant women and or uh, we all have patients who are considering pregnancy. Um, what are What's the best data on pregnancy and COVID-19?
1: So, obviously, it, there isn't a lot of data to talk about. What we really have are guidelines and recommendations. Um, and so you have the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, and ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, and what they've done is they've issued recommendations. First of all, when it comes to testing, they think that pregnant women uh, who are admitted to the hospital uh, need priority testing. Uh, certainly anyone who's pregnant and develops symptoms associated with COVID-19 um, uh, you know, should be admitted and should be tested. Um, screening uh, for COVID-19 in pregnant women should follow uh, advice for the general population. The other thing is we've had this lockdown and we have to determine what are essential uh, medical conditions to be taken care of and what are not. Many many routine visits have been canceled and they've certainly advised that prenatal visits should occur as planned. And if there's a scheduled delivery, that should continue as planned. There's no evidence of vertical transmission, even if there's infection late in pregnancy. And of course, uh, limiting visitors to the hospital is something that is different now than compared to normal times. Normally, having a baby is a time for celebration, and uh, family members are often congregating uh, with the mother, and uh, that's something that's probably uh, less feasible in our current situation.
0: Well, I, th- I think this is this is helpful because um, we we don't know too much about pregnancy and COVID-19, but recognizing that there is no data that supports vertical transmission, meaning the if the mom is infected, the infant becomes infected, that that's really helpful to know. Alan, I really appreciate your taking the time to give us this update on, on COVID-19 infection and, and where we're going in the future. Thanks again. Thanks, Frank. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed, to claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and
1: see you next week.